You're listening to Black Neon Digital Podcasts, episode 14, Han Atesh, Black Horse Lane, Craft Gene Revolution. Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcasts. I'm your host, Jodie Muta-Hamilton, and I believe the future of fashion is to honour craftsmanship whilst embracing innovation and to support each other to build businesses that have integrity. The entrepreneurs and visionaries who we speak to are using fashion as a way to create change, finding new ways of working towards more ethical, sustainable and connected fashion industry. Community building has become a frequently used term in branding exercises and marketing plans. But what does it really mean to build a community, to share a common interest, to aim for something and grow together? Han Atesh, founder of Black Horse Lane Ateliers, a denim factory in Walthamstow, East London, has built not only a factory, but a community. A community who come together because of a shared love of craftsmanship and the appreciation of denim. In this podcast, I speak to Han about the changes he has seen over the years, how it's important that craftsmanship, technology, sustainability and business aims work together in harmony, and about the craft gene revolution taking place at Black Horse Lane. Thanks so much for having us here today. Really appreciate you giving up your time and um, letting us into your factory. And we've had a good look around. So thank you for that today. You're more than Um, welcome. Thank you. Um, What I'd like to start off with is how you got to where you are now. So, you know, we've we know that you've had a factory in the past before. So in 1995, you had a factory and things have changed and you've Mm -hmm. come back into it. So can you just explain to me, you know, even from like growing up, like how did you get to this point? Sure, sure. Well, I came to this country, actually, I came to London, I would say, in 1987. And at the time, my uncle had a factory here. And I think he he was employing about 140, 150 people. He had a, quite a big factory in, Saint, in uh, East London, in Hackney, Dawson. And my first visit to him was my first day in the UK. So I, I landed to Heathrow, took a black taxi, went into his factory. And I was, um, in a way, I was a bit scared and impressed at the same time. Because this huge space full of people, and you were, you were hearing buzz of the machines. It's like... It's like being an airplane, really. So, and it was the darker than I thought. It was a bit run down dark. And that was my first impression of uh, garment making in London. Yeah, so kind of the, I guess, a London experience anyway, is it's all a bit depressing and a bit dark and a bit scary, <laughs> maybe. Um, were you excited by it, though? Was there an element of uh, that? I mean, I... I was, it felt uh, scared, I felt scared, mm. but at the end of the day, I was more impressed, I, I guess, okay. and um, what impressed me most is, was uh, London was a, was a city where in Turkey, in Istanbul, we were really looking, we always looked up at London because it was the center of fashion, music, 
democracy, but seeing the conditions of the workers was interesting for mm-hmm. me. They were not any different than Istanbul in mm-hmm. that sense. So you would have expected it to be quite different in that sense. Sure, of the condition. yes. Okay. yes. And they were very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I started working in my uncle's factory as a presser first. Then gradually I became a quality controller. But meantime, I wanted to learn English. And I was studying part-time, studying uh, at uh, Central London and coming back to work. And gradually, I gave up working in the factory because I didn't like the conditions. And and I started my small uh, uh, restaurant business at that time. It failed. And uh, towards the end, my uncle reached out to me and said, look, uh, I... At that time, he opened his second factory, and he said to me, I can't concentrate on two factories. Would you be willing to become partners on the second one? And I said yes. And that's how I involved in garment manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And at the time, what sort of garments were they making? In that oh, we were, we, were, we were doing more structured garments, tailoring garments for women. Mm-hmm. And the production was amazing because those days we had in East London, we had more than 4,000 factories. And that what that means is we had so many skilled mm. workers in London. And also London traditionally always has been garment uh, making hub mm. uh, for Europe. And um, um, at that time, what were the kind of like makeup of the people who were there? So like at that time, my time, we had lots of uh, Greeks. Jewish, Turks, um, uh, some uh, people from Pakistan, some people from India. So I would say these are the five Mm -hmm. nationalities uh, who who was very much involved Mm -hmm. in garment making in London. And what about now? What would you say the the main contrast would be? So I know that you. I think now is it's it's very much changed. Uh, we don't have three, four thousand factories anymore, so there is a huge drainage of of skilled workers. And I would say now we have Romanians, Bulgarians, still some Turks. Where has the skill gone? Where have these people ended up going, or what jobs have they gone into? You know, from from then to now, what's been the change? Yeah. Beginning of 2000, uh, we had a huge, uh, huge immigration of production went to Eastern Europe or Turkey or Morocco or, or China. With that, all those factory workers uh, became unemployed, and gradually they became taxi drivers, minicab drivers. Uh, they opened their own little corner shops. Um, they they started working in um, dry cleaners or sample rooms mainly, and also uh, if you if you look at it as a, as a as a size in the in the two thousand when factories started closing, uh, we had some manufacturers here and and therefore they were employing those people, but gradually within within two to twenty years time or 18 years' time, even those manufacturers bought by people from Turkey, people from China, people from Hong Kong, and those those manufacturers finished as well. Mm. So it's not just the factories uh, closed down, 
but yeah. the middlemen who was uh, who was serving between the high street mm-hmm. and the factories, they were bought Has off by well. by yeah. by uh, yeah. the countries yeah. where the production went. So you, I know that you had a break, so mm-hmm. you kind of like stepped away from it. And what was the main reasons for that? So. I'm going to go back to the conditions okay. of the, when I first came to mm-hmm. this country. I was surprised the conditions were same as Istanbul, which is Turkey at the time. It's a developing country now, but at the time I would say third world country. And when I first became partners to my uncle, one thing I promised myself, I, I, I wanted to create a better atmosphere for the, for the workers. And also at the time, my mom and dad was factory workers. So I went into the factory and I made sure that we had one full-time cleaner. And I made sure that we, we, we created a canteen within this space where people could eat. So there was already a change. And gradually, uh, with that, other factory owners seen it. Other manufacturers have seen the change. And they started demanding uh, from other factories. But at the same time, the European Union was changing health and safety conditions. So that was something really positive for manufacturing. And with European Union came in, uh, we had much better, uh, in terms of health and safety, cleanliness, better factories. And, uh, and now that we want to come out of European Union, my fear is that it might go down. Again. It might reverse, mm. and and yeah, that's one of the fears mm-hmm. I have. Because I mean, you're very, you know, here at your factory is very holistic. You know, it's about learning and training, and you know the restaurant side of it, and kind of also getting the community into to be involved so people yes. living around the area mm-hmm. not just within the factory mm-hmm. um that's very important to you as well it is very important and it's 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 very much to do with my experience and your question earlier i i had a break from fashion the reason i had a break from fashion at one point uh, i moved my production from london to turkey from turkey to china that's uh, that took me around 12 to 12 to 14 years that cycle meantime i had two daughters one was 9 one was 12 and one day i just stopped and i i, I was i looked at back my relationship with my daughters i didn't have a relationship with them and it was so painful to think that i have two daughters and i didn't have a relationship so there was a big hole in me and that was a painful hole and I decided to stop that and, 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 and do something about it. And of course, the, 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 the stop that means stopping production in the Far East. I sold my interest to my partner, business interest, and decided uh, to take one year break. And I went home, I told them the news, and I said, hey guys, what about having one year holiday? And at the time, they used to go to Rudolf Steiner School. And thanks to the school's flexibility, we were able to do that. And we I took one year... I would have loved to have seen their faces when you told yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, one was nine. She was upset because she didn't want to be away from her friends. <laughs> the 12-year-old, she was excited but puzzled. 
And my wife at the time, she, she was very happy. She was really happy. And we took one year off. We went into our cars and we gradually came to Paris, stayed a couple of weeks there, gradually went around to Europe that way. For we, I thought it was going to be a year, but it, 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 it lasted nine months. We had enough of it at the end of <laughs> nine months. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so you then obviously came and set back up in East London. So, so I, came, I came back to where I lived always, Stoke Newington in, in East London, East Northeast, I would say. And I said, I promised myself that for work, I'm not going to travel. So I'm going to open something small in my neighborhood. And because of my romanticism about food, I come from a Mediterranean uh, country. Everything is, uh, we do everything around, around tables, around food. And, and I was married to an Italian woman. You know, Italians, the food, yeah. wine is important. I decided to open a local restaurant. I think that was a turning point for me to see things differently uh, because at that time I was living in the area for 22 years and until that until I opened my doors as a restaurant I didn't know my uh, neighbors I didn't know who lived next to me and when I started to know my customers my my uh, clients I fell in love with them because I met their wives, their boyfriends, their husbands, their, their grandparents. Their, uh, I met everybody. Some people married in my restaurant. Then they had children. They celebrated their birthdays. So it was a very intimate, very amazing relationship. Mm-hmm. And I became, first they were my clients, but I became friends with mm-hmm. them. I still have some friends so I thought, wow, being connected to the community you live in is very fulfilling because just before my experience was I wasn't mm. connected, let alone the city I lived in, mm. I wasn't connected to my daughters. So just working in your locality and opening your doors is a different kind of fulfillment mm. there. It's a bit more holistic. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you've done here, isn't it? Kind of marry the two worlds together. Yeah, because uh, even though I loved food... Uh, it's very competitive. It's very, uh, very honest because you can't serve off fish to a customer or off meat, off ingredients. You need to be really very careful. You need to be very clean. You need to be very... Also, seasonality is so important as well. Uh, even though I loved it, one thing I was missing was the creative person in a, in a, in a restaurant is the head chef. Mm-hmm. If you are not a head chef, you, you you sit at the back seat and just just let the the master uh, do the work for mm-hmm. for you. And because I'm such a hands-on person, I was missing my creativity. And I was saying to myself, uh, if I ever go back, I'm gonna do it differently. If I ever go back to fashion, I'm gonna do it differently. Uh, and and. That's why I believe what we do is very much to do with my mm-hmm. own experience. Would you, so um, 
kind of one one of my things that I'm looking into and exploring is is the role of people working in fashion generally. So, you know, we have a designer that's seen as a star, so they are the head chef of the fashion world. Yes. Um, you know, and then you have machinists and, you know, you said your progression, you were a presser and then you went on to do something mm-hmm. else. And there's this progression route about things. Um, but there's also perception of people working in individual roles. So, you know, a designer's seen to be more amazing than a machinist. Um, and kind of the thing that I feel we need to get over is is changing that perception a little mm-hmm. bit. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, here you, you do that by, you know, the people that you work with in their own rights yes. are skilled and craftsmen and, you know... Are, should be revered as much as a craft um as a chef sorry so how do you think that we can make their roles um more appealing to Mm -hmm. younger generations Mm -hmm. because that's where we need to concentrate and try and get more skills and and keep the industry alive so yeah yeah how do you feel about that Uh, somehow i feel it's very simple it's just been talking about them and nothing else and giving the importance that they deserve. And for example, here we created a structure where they have an opportunity to become shareholders in the company. And it's just that I want uh, our staff to understand that they are really as important as a partner. And But also every time we... we I have meetings with with the designers or or with the journalists or or with biz, even with my bank manager. Every time I say to them, important people here is not just me. It's the it's the people mm. who who makes the garments because I don't make the garments. I mean, if I make a garment, I it took, it would take me whole day to produce one mm. jeans, mm-hmm. and it's not cost effective. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's it's about talking and and as you do, sort of opening up to people to yeah. To I mean, come by, by you know what happens by talking, you create awareness, mm-hmm. and that awareness is very powerful, very powerful. And I mean, we have lots of customers coming in here and and seeing their jeans made by the people. Sometimes they interact with each other as well. There, it's it's a magical moment mm. those day, those times, and I think it's a very powerful. And then there's, for example, the other thing we do we do denim master classes workshops here, and we have designers, pattern cutters, or 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 craft craft enthusiasts. They come and learn how to make jeans. It takes them two days to make one jeans. That's great. They become make they become makers themselves, but what's what happens with that? Their appreciation grows mm-hmm. for the makers because mm-hmm. we always have one or two assistants or or yeah the mm-hmm. tailors here helping them. At the end of the day, they never come to me to thank me, but they always thank mm-hmm. the makers and the tailors here. So that's yeah. nice to see as well. Yeah. Um, we I just wanted to talk a little bit about why. Why Turkey and why Japan are like the go-to places for denim? Could you just obviously you know heaps more about denim than me, so could you just explain a little bit about that for me? Yeah, I mean, it's an too interesting country. They both have have huge history, 
I mean, Turkey through Byzantine times, through Ottoman times, and modern Turkey, they have a history of textile. And Japan as well. And they are very traditionalist as well in that sense. And somehow Turkey produces cotton. And therefore, when the multinationals, they started to move from states or, or, or UK or France or Germany, the, because Turkey is close to Europe, they first came to Turkey because they, it produces cotton. And the Japan, I would say, they have a huge integrity when it comes to quality. And even though Japan doesn't produce cotton, but they produce one of the most beautiful fabrics you can imagine. And that's one of the reasons I think those two countries are very strong. Mm -hmm. So it's almost, you know, they value the tradition and the craft and kind of become huge enthusiasts about that themselves. And then that translates now into modern day. And we basically want to wear these things and, and put them into our own world as well. Um, yes, yes. But I don't want to forget that in London we have a huge heritage of garment making as well and in fact one of the one of the reasons we had many reasons but one of the reasons for Black Horse Lane to be here we want to rekindle uh, garment making in London of course in UK inevitably but London because my heritage professional heritage is here mm -hmm. I want to make sure that we have more makers in London mm -hmm. so by by trying to compete with the best in the world, uh, that's what our aim is in, in Black Horse Lane. We want to make one of the best jeans in the world. We don't want to do any less than that. Mm -hmm. Just putting our, our aim so high, I think uh, then we could compete with mm -hmm. Japan's craftsmanship or, mm -hmm. or Turkey's convenience. So I know that even from a, a simple sort of point of view, the, the product as well as the story is very important to you. So, um, for example, there's no overlock in its, its French seams. And, and why, can you just tell me why, why that physical, like one element is so important? So why, why is overlocking not as good as a French seam? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't put it that way. Uh, they're all okay. But... Uh, I talked about my heritage, professional heritage. I, I am trained as a tailor. And in the tailoring world, you use as little as possible overlocking. I'm going to give you a small story, and then it's connected with this. I was reading a book. In the book, this author was talking about uh, in the 50s, uh, United States wanted to send a man to the moon. So they... They were designing uh, shuttles to, to the moon. They designed it. They did the first prototype. And then uh, at the last second, they realized they made a mistake. The mistake was uh, because technology was there, they, they, they built it. Uh, but they were going to transport the shuttle into the, the somewhere in the central uh, desert with a train. But the tunnels of the train was uh, with the 18, 1840s, 1850s technology, where in Britain, when they, they did the steam trains, they were very narrow. So the, all, the, all the tunnels were narrow. So they had to change the design 
So in a way, we always build something from our history. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how advanced you are, there is a there is a historical mm-hmm. connection. So my my heritage is tailoring, and when I look at the one of the best genes inside out, I always thought this is unfinished. This is full of overlooks. It's unfinished. In the tailoring world, it's unacceptable. If I ever do jeans, I'll, I'll make sure that it will look finished. So that's the reason, really. Yeah. It's not because it's bad <laughs> yeah. or worse. Yeah. It's to do with, with, with our yeah. her- mm-hmm. heritage, yes. Yeah. Um, how, how could we kind of, you know, as a public, come and engage with you? So your workshops, you've said, I mean, that's obviously important. So, I mean, uh, again, connectivity is the most important thing. That's when I realized I felt happy mm-hmm. when I connected with my daughters, when I connected with the community I lived in. And we wanted to do Black Horse Lane in a way that we set it up in a way that we are, we were, we are connected to the community we, we work in. So the major thing is we don't uh, have appointment policy. Everybody could come in. Our doors are open. Uh, we don't have any secrets. We, we, and anybody could ask where our fabric comes from, what we do, how we do. We open. We, mm-hmm. have, we have a transparency policy. The other thing is we have did different, uh, it's a very diverse community space here. We have a pop-up restaurant, uh, we have weavers, we have art restorers. So having different walks of life here creates a different uh, energy as well. Mm. So every morning I'm really happy to come to work. I think that's one of the secrets of success is every morning do you wake up to wanting to go to work or do you wake up? dreading to go to work mm-hmm. yeah for sure and and for example with the pop-up restaurant every weekend one or two nights sometimes three nights uh, local people they come and eat here and then first when they book if they don't know black horse lane they really they think that they are coming to an old uh, derelict factory when they see that it's actually functioning real genes around they are surprised yeah yeah pleasantly surprised and for example denim and dine the restaurant has been around for two years but i would say last eight months we are seeing the fruits of of denim and dine customers coming to us saying oh we we a year ago or 18 months ago we had dinner here now we need jeans we like to buy jeans. So that creates connectivity with each other, really. Mm-hmm. Cross-contamination, yeah. I say, because it's, we yeah. learn from each other, mm-hmm. we, we affect each other. And by opening our doors to nearly 100 new faces every week. So it's a, it's yeah. a good PR yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, you touched on something actually um, a second ago about sort of sustainability. So... You know, we live in the UK, we have to get products and fabrics and buttons and everything brought into us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you have a sort of rating system about how you look at denim. You know, mm-hmm. is it from Japan? Is it from Turkey or, or wherever? Um, could you just explain to me how you decide to work with a particular denim and how you look at carbon footprint and all this sort of thing? Sure. So I know that's important to you as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, denim is one of the most polluting fashion items in the world. And we want to reverse that. Mm-hmm. And when we look at uh, 
denim producers uh, in terms of fabric, uh, we look. We we have certain criteria. We look at their quality. We look at the factory's commitment to the environment. That's really important for us, and we look at their reference point because we never work with a factory who, whom we we never heard of. It's we always work with the mills where we have been recommended. Uh, so quality and their commitment to the environment is important. Their price to the quality, the relationship, the price and the quality, their relationship is important. And 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 thirdly, we look at a, we look at the fact that, for example, Japanese mills they produce one of the best fabric in the world, as I mentioned earlier. But they don't produce cotton, so they buy their cotton preferably from Africa because it's hand-picked. In the hand-picking, uh, the fibers in the cotton don't break because they are longer fibers. And when they uh, put that into yarns, the yarns become stronger, and then they weave that into denim. Obviously, denim will be stronger. We love that. Mm-hmm. But something from Central Africa to to Japan is 8,000, 9,000 kilometers. I don't know how many, but it's quite a bit. From Japan to here, another 13,000, 14,000 kilometers. So by the time fabric arrives to us, it has 25,000 kilometers as a carbon footprint. Even though we love Japanese fabrics, somehow we feel, oh, mm. that's, this is not right. Then we looked at Italian mills, and Italians, they are our neighbors. They don't produce cotton, but they buy it from Egypt. So from Egypt to Italy is 500 kilometers average. From Italy to here, 1,800 kilometers. So when we buy Italian fabric, it's usually 2,300, 2,500 kilometers. It's only 10% of the carbon footprint. And Italian factories are very committed to environmental, their environmental duties, really. They are really good at it. So we also work with Turkey. Turkey produces their own cotton. And in fact, one mill that we work with closely, they have their own cotton field, uh, which we could trace the fabric. And from Turkey to here is 2,300 kilometers. Again, their carbon footprint is low. And Italian and Turkish uh, quality is, let's say Japanese is 10 out of 10. Italians are 9, 9.5. Turks are 8.5. But the price structure, Turkey is the best because somehow their salaries are lower than the Japan and Italy. The second best price is Italy. So we look at different aspects of fabrics. And we never say to our customer, don't buy this or don't buy that. We only share our knowledge and our experience. And the customers, they really make best decisions for themselves. What, what do you wear? What's your choice? I wear Turkish and Japanese. So I have two trousers. One is Turkish, one is Japanese. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I just want to look a bit forward to the future because... Um, you obviously work with David, who's who we're sat with at the moment. Um, and David's background, you know, is quite digitally focused, Shazam and List and all this. So that kind of says that there's something happening here that's, again, 
you know, future thinking, digitally mm-hmm. focused, retail focused. Can you just explain to me what's in your future at Black Horse Lane? Um, it's a difficult one. I wish I had the crystal ball to, to, to be able to say exactly. But what I could say that we, we want to produce one of the best genes in the world. And we want to make sure that uh, we do more workshops here. We are more engaged with the nature because we have our own allotment. And first year we managed to uh, grow Japanese indigo. Second year we couldn't do it because somehow we couldn't manage it. This year we really want to have the success of first year. So we really want to connect with the nature in that sense and, and do workshops around how do you uh, extract from a plant an indigo color and, and work with the schools. But most importantly, uh, if we become very successful, somehow, instead of uh, becoming uh, multinational, what we would want to do, let's say in states, in North Africa, uh, America, we are very successful and what we would want to do, get a local partner and open, I don't know, the, the something high street atelier in, in the United States with the same principles rather than uh, expanding this place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, make so, to make it worldwide, basically. In a way, but with very much locally connected mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because every, every I, I know that if you put this in Japan, their handwriting will be totally different Mm. than us. And that's why local partners Mm -hmm. are very important. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I know on a completely different side of things that um, Apple, for example, are now concentrating a lot more on their own local market with their, you know, photography, their digital kind of like representation, because although it's a global brand, the community Mm -hmm. and the local people are the things that you know, keep that alive in that area and they're the people that buy it, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But I'm sure David has uh, his own ideas of what he sees, how our, how we s- you see our connection with the f- technology as well as, as with the consumer. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think a lot of it for me revolves around sort of the separation of digital goods and physical goods. So, Working in tech for 11 years, you know, everything's apps and websites and new iPhones and, you know, new PlayStations, etc. But at the end of the day, all of those things uh, become <clears throat> out of date and go into a landfill. So, you know, Han's iPhone's barely working. He really needs to buy a new one. But that's aluminum, that's silicon, and that's things that are going to be going to be have to be recycled. Whereas, you know, a beautiful garment like a pair of jeans or, you know, a, a Goodyear welted shoe, you can keep those things for a very long time. And so for me, I'm quite excited by this idea of educating people um, that, you know, things don't have to be disposable. They don't have to be um, thrown away after a certain amount of time, but rather they evolve and change and develop a patina and become um, heirlooms. So we're writing a blog post at the moment and um, about kind of, you know, um, buy less, fix more, create stories and make it last in this idea of, you know, when someone invests in a pair of our jeans, it's something they can keep for life and we'll help them repair it. We'll teach them how to repair it. Um, or, you know, we'll explain why when your jeans fade and, and tear it and how that makes them more beautiful. 
and for me, I think that's quite interesting to, to not um, let digital get into our product, but rather use digital as a means of communicating something beautiful about analog. Um, you know, we have a, a, a company we work with um, that they, they brought in a worker's coat that's been passed down through the family for multiple generations, and it's still a wearable, usable work coat. And, you know, when you think about an iPhone lasting two years and this work coat lasting, I don't know, let's, let's guess 70 years, um, that's something special. And I think people need to be awo- awoken to that. Um, just two weeks ago, I was at a, a kind of a tech meets craft conference uh, called Monkey Gras in London. And um, one of the guys came up to me afterwards and he said, hey, you know, I loved your talk. And the fact that you were talking about fast fashion and stuff was interesting. But why do you guys call it fast fashion? Because fast is a good thing in most cases. So it sounds like you're almost endorsing or, or kind of talking about this thing in a positive light. Why not call it trash fashion, junk fashion, um, you know, things that kind of give it a negative slant because you're, you're hurting the planet when people make that. So, yeah, that's great, actually. We're not going to say that we're against fast fashion. Maybe we're going to say that here at Black Horse Lane we're against junk fashion or trash fashion, and, and we want to use digital as a means of um, educating our consumers um, you know, helping people appreciate garments for longer, keep them for longer, and I, I ideally also buy less. You know, it'd be great to sell someone one pair of blue jeans and one pair of black jeans, and that's it. And yeah. you know, not sell them more jeans and just repair the ones they have. And um, I think so I think digital is that that enabler. I think about two weeks ago we had a customer ordering their fourth pair within eighteen months. And of course, we are we are going to send that. I think we have sent it to the customer, yeah. but very often uh, we have a dilemma where we say, okay, our our ethos, our philosophy, we want to encourage people to buy less within eighteen months. If a customer buys fourth pair, it's a great. I mean, that that means he or she really believes in us. But we have a problem with that. We would rather repair the customer's jeans and send it back as a repair. So we had another another customer came in. This is a wholesale customer, uh, wanted to buy lots of Black Horse Lane jeans, but they wanted for us to uh, send it to laundrette where you you stonewash them and you become from rigid format into whitish, light blue. Again, we had to say no to that because uh, it's not in our philosophy to use more, even more water or more chemicals to achieve more sales. So uh, I think educating other people is a strong word, which I I don't really uh, like it. But what I like to say to you, we share our experience with people and we share our, because we have huge amount of knowledge in terms of why denim is uh, so bad for the environment or why fashion is so bad for the environment. And if we share our experiences, our knowledge, I know that the consumer will, will they will make a, a, a knowledgeable uh, decision. Yeah, yeah, an informed decision. Informed decision, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say, or no? I think David. I think one last thing that maybe is just very brief, but I know we talk about a lot of kind of philosophical ideas and kind of conceptual ideas behind the brand. But one thing I found that really is interesting that helps people connect with us in a more literal sense is um, we've been using this term called craft gene revolution. Uh, and the idea is um, 
you know, Hamid's inspired by craft beer making, you know, kind of artisanal coffee roasting, and this idea that you could walk into your local brewery, meet the brewmaster, see how they're making your beer, taste that beer, and ultimately you are less interested in buying kind of cheap mass-produced beer, and you actually want to buy craft-scale beer that, you know, it tastes better, it's, you know where it comes from, same thing with coffee, and even same thing with organic foods. And I think a lot of the kind of concepts we talked about today really kind of tie back to this idea of a craft gene revolution. You know, we want you to come meet the brewmaster Han, and we want you to come and see everyone who's, so to speak, brewing the genes, I guess you could say, and kind of get a, a feel for that, what it means to make genes and, and ultimately raise your appreciation. And so I think when we say it in that way, it, it sometimes makes it a bit more easy to kind of say, oh, okay, right. That's what this is. I've been to a brewery. I've been to a roastery. Now I kind of can draw a connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope other business owners will listen to this. And the consumer experience is really important. And if you are connected to the consumer with your story, and 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 you create a different kind of experience. Because imagine I go to Paris, I go to Tokyo, I go to Rome, Istanbul, New York. All the high street is same they're all designed nicely, marbles everywhere are very clean, and then that experience became very dry now. So whatever you do, if you create a different consumer experience, uh, then I think you are more likely to succeed, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're you're really engaging with the people around yeah, you. You're connecting always, yeah. that connectivity mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. customer in a in a very deep level mm-hmm. is important. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks. Pleasure. Since Han started his journey in the garment industry, the landscape has changed significantly. The abundance of skilled machinists are now not as easy to find. The sales model has changed with online retail. Customers can walk through the door at Black Horse Lane or share their experience of buying the best jeans ever made from the other side of the world. By focusing on the things that really matter to people, the commonalities that bond us, Black Horse Lane has created the right blend of elevated craft and digital foresight. So it's no wonder they have created a craft gene revolution. Till next time, be sure to join the conversation via Instagram at Black Neon Digital, Twitter at Digital Neon and online at blackneondigital.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes as it helps other people who care about the future of fashion to find us.